Hi, I'm Erica Chitty Cohen, and you're listening to This Matters, conversations on COVID-19. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Loom, a well-being brand that empowers women around sexual and reproductive health. This episode is about sex and COVID-19 and how the pandemic is transforming how we access pleasure within our own bodies and with others. My friend, Dr. Emily Nagoski, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life, joined me to have this conversation. We both went deep and shared about finding comfort in masturbation, the importance of couples embracing non-sexual touch, and what dating someone new looks like during a pandemic. It was a really fun conversation, and I'm excited for you to listen to it. This episode was recorded on May 14th, 2020. Hey, Emily, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I am also great um, inside of the canopy of the pandemic in right. which we and all of us live. <laughs> um, Corona great. Just, yeah, Corona great. Yeah, just that's, that's pandemic great, Corona great, COVID-19 great. Uh, well, before we dive in, I want to just welcome everyone that's joining us tonight. Uh, this is the last episode in our This Matters COVID conversations or last episode in our conversations on COVID-19. That actually is a little bit of a tongue twister. Only today do I somehow realize that. Lots of C's. Um, and I'm super, super excited to have Emily with us this evening. But for those of you who might not know me, my name is Erica Chitty Cohen. I am the co-founder and CEO of Loom. We're a well-being brand that focuses on empowering women around sexual and reproductive health. And really the focus behind this series was to try and have a conversation around how the pandemic is, infect is infecting people, yes, <laughs> but how it's also affecting our lives, especially our sexual reproductive health. And so tonight we're going to be talking about sex. And I want to share a little bit about Emily for those who don't know her, even though I feel like everyone should know you. Um, she is the New York Times bestselling author of Come As You Are and the Come As You Are workbook, which I highly recommend. And another book called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, which she co-authored with her twin sister, identical twin sister, Amelia. She has a PhD in health behavior and a doctoral concentration in human sexuality from Indiana University and a master's degree in counseling with a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute for Sexual Health. And she is on a mission to teach women how to live in their bodies with confidence and with joy. So, so happy to have you with us tonight. I am so happy to be here tonight. Yeah, so let's just get into it. I mean, I think it's also important to say- Beverage. Yeah, please, please have beverage. <laughs> please liquefy yourself. Is that not liquefied? Get there. Um, <laughs> hydrate, <laughs> melt away. Yeah, um, but caffeine because it's nine o'clock for me and that's around my bedtime, so. Well, luckily this is gonna be short and sweet. So yeah. we won't keep you up too far past your bedtime. But, you know, something that we've kind of been talking about, like just in our kind of relationship and friendship is just how, you know, real time collective trauma that's occurring around this pandemic is impacting sex and impacting desire. And I'm just 
really curious, like, what are you seeing? Like, how are you seeing this trauma impact how people are navigating sex? I, because I get asked about this a lot, I did a totally informal Twitter survey of just oh, to find okay. out, like, a single question uh, in the context of the pandemic, are you having sex more frequently, less frequently, or about the same? Um, and let people tell me whatever comments they had. And about half of people were having sex less frequently than they were before. Um, so clearly it's impacting our uh, sexual activity to some degree. Why that is, there's all kinds of stories you could tell about it. I feel like it's pretty easy to explain given the basic way that sex works in our brains is the dual control mechanism. That's a sexual accelerator that responds to all the sex related information and sends a turn on signal. And then there's a sexual break that notices all the good reasons not to be turned on, all the potential threats. And it sends the turn off signal in the process of becoming aroused is this dual process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. And living through a pandemic, feeling constantly like going outside could put you at risk. Uh, that does not hit the accelerator, it totally <laughs> hits the brake. Uh, and we, particularly because the way most people have been taught to think about sexual desire and sexual pleasure and sexual initiation, we imagine that it's supposed to come from a sense of spontaneous, hotty, horny, can't wait to put my tongue in your mouth kind of feeling. Yeah. And pandemic is not a situation. Pandemic is a situation where the idea of putting your tongue in someone's mouth is literally taking your life in your hands that hits the brakes. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I think that's, I think sometimes for people it's hard to, you know, metabolize that in real time. I think there's this like intellectual component that we know that because this is a communicable virus that physical contact is scary now, like scary yeah. level that few of us have really ever experienced before. And so rationally that, does make you feel like, hmm, I might be less interested in sharing my body with someone else. However, I think our culture is so sex obsessed and also like under-informed about sex. And so the, ration, the rational part of your mind still feels this like societal pressure, especially now that we are, for some of us, quarantining with our partners to somehow live out this different sexual experience or live up to the sexual pressure when the situation that's happening right now isn't supportive of that. And so I think it's really helpful that you did the, you know, just like a random Twitter survey just to kind of get even a little bit more clarity that people are having sex less and that there's actually nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Totally normal, totally explainable, makes perfect sense. I can imagine like the romance novel version of COVID where you're <laughs> forced propinquity with your partner, you've been like struggling with whatever, but the fact that you're trapped together makes you confront all your stuff and you appreciate each other in a new way and you feel like you're a team together working on the adventure of surviving the thing. I can imagine a world where people frame their experience that way and they turn it into an exciting adventure. Um, are you a 30 Rock fan at all? I was when it was on TV. So uh, Jenna and the person she marries had that kind of relationship where they just take anything, going to Ikea and turn <laughs> yeah. it into like this hot adventure. Like we are so sick. Look at us. 
<laughs> How do I care? Yeah. Getting home from a long day and falling asleep, like everything. And that's, that works for some people and that's awesome. And that's not how I'm pandemicking. I'm just stressed and exhausted all the time. 100% same. And I think one of the things when we talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to you about how as much as I am pro masturbation and, you know, pro porn and, and all of these things, you know, I was really struggling with masturbating because I was nervous about having an orgasm because I thought an orgasm would make me cry. And I didn't feel like crying because I felt like if I started crying, I wouldn't stop crying. And that was a few weeks ago. I've acclimated. I'm no longer afraid. (laughs) Um, But it was interesting that the pandemic environment and the stress of that, like, made me fear my own body in a very conscious way. Because I think a lot of us do walk around with a sense of fear or a sense of feeling really disembodied, but mm-hmm. the pandemic like really brought it to to the forefront for me. And I was noticing how much I was resisting release, like resisting that cocktail yes. of, of, of hormones in my body. I was like, I just want to be in parasympathetic. I, I don't want to be in parasympathetic. I mean, I just want to be in like fight or flight. And I was scared to come yeah. out of fight or flight because I was like, well, what happens if I do? Will I be more like vulnerable, you know, literally. Yeah, literally, that's what your chemistry is saying. If you go out of the activation of fight or flight, if you like let your body chemistry return closer to a baseline state, like the lion is still chasing you. If you relax at all, like it's going to get you. And people actually experience relaxation-induced panic in a situation of trauma or chronic stress that we're currently experiencing. So it makes perfect sense that your body would resist. And many people who live in chronic stress, I mean, even grad school is enough of a chronic stressor to keep people in an elevated state where they feel like they cannot stop to take any sort of emotional break because if they do, they'll just collapse in a heap and not be able to get up. Yeah, yeah. And the reality of our physiology is if we do not pause occasionally and grant our bodies opportunities to rest, and to release from that activation to complete what I call the stress response cycle to go all the way through it. Um, Just like digestion, our stress response has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you don't let your body get to the end, uh, not so great things happen. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what the end can kind of look like and, Mm -hmm. and thinking about it specifically in connection with sex, because, you know, going back to my my little bit about masturbation. I feel like we're in a very pro masturbation kind of porn curious moment in our culture. I think one of the things I, and again, obviously it's who I'm following on my social media, but I was pretty fascinated by as the lockdown started, how many kind of, you know, femme skewing kind of brands were like buy a vibrator or like, you know, or lube or or things like that. There was a lot of push towards this is your time now as you go into this, you know, hovel to like really sexually express yourself. And I think to me, even as someone who feels very sexually empowered and embodied, I was like, this feels like a lot of pressure, like even for myself. (laughs) So I'm so curious around like, ending the stress cycle or making sure it completes itself and trying to find a midpoint between 
you know, go, 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 masturbate, explore yourself and the middle and not doing anything at all. Like where, where where can we go here without feeling like it's excess or it's, you know, famine? So (laughs) it's normal. Everyone is normal. How frequently is the right frequency with which to masturbate? That's entirely up to like every specific individual. I could give you statistics about like what the average frequency is, but the way researchers get that number, of course, is by asking a thousand people, how often do you masturbate? Adding that all together and dividing it by the number of people they asked, right? And then you've got this average number. Does any of those people's masturbation habits have anything to do with you and your masturbation habit? No. No. So, uh, part of me wants to like give like normalizing statistics and, but it's impossible to hear a number like that and not compare yourself. Even though like, you know, you know that those people's sex lives have nothing to do with your sex life. Um, Really. When I think about these things, I worry that people are too obsessed with the external behavioral and the performance of sexuality, even just for themselves as the audience of, I am now doing sexuality right by masturbating with this vibrator and watching this porn and yay, I'm doing the empowered thing, rather than noticing what it feels like in their bodies. What is pleasurable right now? What, and if you're masturbating, is it because like it feels good and it's this beautiful escape for a moment to like be inside the peace and joy of your body? Or are you um, masking your terror? And neither of them is wrong. It's just useful to know whether you're exploring pleasure or uh, using this as a strategy to cope with the stress, depression, anxiety, loneliness, repressed rage, we've all got it. Um, And if you find yourself feeling out of control of your behavior, that for me is the signal. It's not about how frequently you do it. It's not how you do it. It's not anything like what kind of porn you watch. It's just whether or not you feel like you're in control of your sexuality rather than your sexuality being in control of you. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really a profound way of looking at it and, you know, and and really trying to begin to evaluate what does pleasure really feel like, look like in the body. I think that's probably one of the things that could be a kind of silver lining potentially around this time because the pandemic is so kind of joy squelling, you know, and it almost brings your body back to like a zero baseline where you can start to assess like, oh, that actually really felt good. And I haven't felt like that in a really long time because I think pre-pandemic, there was just so much influx of stimuli and we all felt like we were heading in whatever our kind of due north direction was. And now that that's kind of, there's this detour, I think that, like reassessment of pleasure is so interesting. I actually haven't hadn't really thought of that. And I think that I think that's a very kind, harm reductive, supportive way to introduce someone to exploring their body at this time. It's not about how you do it, what you do it with. It's just like, do you like it? Mm-hmm. You know? And I feel like the last time, and I won't again, I can only speak for myself, but I think I would imagine potentially for anybody who has any type of 
masturbation practice with their body, the last time you really thought about the nuance of the pleasure was probably when you were really young and you first started doing it and created this like, you know, attachment to it, um, that this is a way for me to feel good, which is why like children masturbate. And so I just think that's super simple and actually really um, grounding and anchoring actually. I love the analogy of a detour. I had never thought about it that way that like people are like on the super highway of like achieving their goals and living their lives and raising their kids and building their relationships. And like all of a sudden we're all like, nope, we're going over this way because the highway is closed. (laughs) And And like, (laughs) it's not coming back either. (laughs) Yeah. Like there is no more highway. Like, we don't know where we're going. And you can feel all kinds of ways about the fact that you are now on this different road with no idea how long you're going to be on this different road. uh, And your feelings about the people in the car with you. Exactly. (laughs) And so in the middle of all that uncertainty and chaos and disruption, and when we lose that highway, it's not just plans. Our identities are tied to our achievement of our goals and living our lives according to our ideas of what's going to happen with our lives and like living inside our bodies in the way we expect to be able to like put our tongues in other people's mouths and not have it be literally potentially lethal or at least leading to us like passing on an infection and hurting someone else. Um, so like, as I think about it as a detour, it really, like, shifts me into this very definite, like, so how do I feel right now in my body, in this car, in this relationship, the car being, of course, the house that I live in with my two dogs, my two cats, and my husband. Like, here we are. We're going to be here for a minute. We are not in control of how long we're here. My parents on a car trip with like this, we'd all ask how, how much further, how much longer, and they always say about an hour. <laughs> So it's going to be about an hour. We're going to be here. What do you want to do? How do you feel? And maybe you want to explore sexual pleasure together. And it doesn't have to come from like a place of like super hotness. It can come from a place of like, this is really lonely and really scary. And uh, you're the other person in the car with me. So even if all we do is like hold each other in the bed and can like feel our bodies together and our chemistry changes cortisol levels go down and uh, oxytocin levels go up when we can hug each other until our bodies go (sighs) because when you have a person you can hold like that your body knows it has a place to come home to where it is safe Mm -hmm. and the lion might be outside but the lion's outside i think that's really powerful in terms of people that are living together and are and are you know quarantining as a couple because you know it this idea again it's how we're socialized particularly men and people that are in hetero partnerships and even if you're not a cis man most of us are conditioned to interact in a relationship in this very sexual way or this kind of like overtly romantic way and i think boiling it down to you can have a non-sexual somatic or body-based experience with your partner where you are holding each other until there is a actual release. Because I think when you do get compression, your body releases itself. I mean, it's the reason why weighted blankets are like, you know, the best thing in the world. I mean, right. I, I like, I throw two 20 pound weighted blankets on me. So four pounds, 
on my body and I lie on this biomat that I have. And literally it is, it just sh- it shuts off my system. It's like mm. I'm forced to, and like, that's, that's such a, that's such like a kindness to my body, but that can obviously be recreated in a partnership. It's like, it's that, that closeness and that pressure. And so like a good long hug and not just, and it's, it's funny. It's like when, when you say a good long hug, it can, it can sound very um, kind of juvenile and kind of twee and like, but it's actually really powerful. It's like, it's scary as fuck. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. Like it is, so in the research, they suggest a 20-second hug. That is a potentially awkwardly long time to hug somebody. <laughs> but like that's kind of the point, that there's someone yeah. in your life that you can be close enough to to press your body against theirs for that length of time. Um, it gives your body time to do that shift that you're talking about of sinking into the peaceful immobilization that pressure activates in our bodies. Yeah. Yeah, Totally. Yeah. And if people don't have that like physical person and they want to explore connection, I'm, I'm still on like the like detour metaphor. So now I'm th- like, if there's no other adults in your car when you got off the detour and it's just you and whoever, um, then your new explorations of safety and connection end up being virtual. And that's a really different experience because it is more imaginative, but our imaginations are incredibly powerful. Our imaginations can definitely activate stress. They can definitely like activate uh, eroticism, just thinking about stuff and they can move us. They can like end stress. They can lead us deeper into eroticism. So there's a lot of power in the, mediated ways that we can interact with each other. I was thinking of uh, this Canadian sex therapist and researcher Peggy Kleinplatz, whose book just came out this year. It's called Magnificent Sex. Oh, yes, 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 I know about it. It's so good. Um, She and her team interviewed dozens of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives, like great sex, optimal sexual experiences. Um, And she found sort of eight characteristics of what optimal sexual experiences look like. None of them are desire. uh, And the main one is empathy. But what she found was that in relationships of any structure, whether they're in long-term relationships, whether they're monogamous or not, uh, that a really key factor in addition to being free of all the sexual scripts and uh, having really profound empathy was being just safe enough. So when you're with your partner, there's excitement and adventure and really wild things. And what that looks like is really different from couple to couple. For some people, it's going to be um, turning on a light is going to be like you are barely at the edge of your safety zone when you turn on that light. For some people, it's going to be role play. For some people, it'll be incorporating other people. For some people, it'll be fantasies of incorporating other people. For some people, it's just daring to say out loud to their partner, this is the kind of porn I like to watch. Mm-hmm. Just safe enough. That's really interesting because, and actually before I go into that, I think it might be really helpful for those who might not be familiar with your work because you just kind of created this discrepancy between empathy and desire. Can you just like quick cliff notes kind of give people the difference with desire, arousal, pleasure? Consent. Four different things. Yes. Yeah. So um, in our 
what is generally called the reward center or the pleasure center of your brain. That's like calling your vulva your vagina. That's, that's one important feature, but it leaves out some important things which will leave you really confused when you're trying to understand what vulvas do. Um, the reward center is three intertwined parts. There is the pleasure center, these tiny discrete opioid hotspots in your brain that react to things that feel good. So drop sugar water on your tongue and your, this liking system, pleasure system lights up, right? That's pleasure. And then there's desire, which is a separate but related system that's mediated by dopamine. It is a vast, it expands all through our brains. And instead of it just being about like, oh, that feels really good. It's about, I would like to get some more of that. I feel motivated and interested and curious and exploratory. I always think of my niece when she was four or five years old, she would follow, follow, follow my brother around and go, daddy, what's in the freezer? What's in the freezer? What do you think's in the freezer? And the ice cream, ice cream. June, you know it's in the freezer. <laughs> That's wanting, which is clearly related to pleasure. She wants it because she has a memory of it feeling good, but it's not the same thing. It's a separate system. And then there's the third system, which is the learning system that links your external experience to your physical response. So uh, over the course of your early life, your brain learns what counts as a sex-related stimulus, and it sends that turn-on signal. And just because it's sex-related doesn't necessarily mean it's tied to desire or pleasure necessarily. Uh, the key example, I always go to, I hate this analogy, but here it is, Pavlov's dogs. Yep. Pavlov, trained a dog to salivate in response to a bell. It's very easy. Anyone can do it. You just give a dog food, the dog salivates automatically, and you ring a bell. Food, salivate, bell. Food, salivate, bell. Eventually, you can just go bell, and the dog will salivate because the bell is food-related. Mm -hmm. Does the bell, does the salivation mean the dog wants to eat the bell? Or, or that the dog finds the bell delicious? No, it just means the dog was exposed to a food-related stimulus, and so a physiological response happened that's linked to food, right? So our bodies may generate uh, an arousal response, a physiological response to a sex-related stimulus, regardless of whether we want or like it. The simple way to characterize this is unwanted arousal. The technical term is arousal non-concordance. It happens to people of every genital set. It is more typical of vaginas, and I say that advisedly because the measurement that they use in the research goes into the vagina than, than it is of penises, but it occurs to people of any genitals. And I think that non-concordance piece is so interesting, especially with the other research that you were talking about from Peggy's new book in the sense that empathy and safety were yeah. these key components to right. really good sex because I, your vagina does not know about the pandemic. Mm. So being just safe enough is not something your vagina is just like a sex related thing happened. And so here have some blood flow. Uh, and it doesn't take into account the larger context. The rest of your brain is responding to like your whole sexual history and uh, your whole relationship history and the state of the world and your current biochemistry. It's responding to everything that has ever happened to you. It's massively hyper-associative um, and it's all happening right now. And whether a sex-related thing or not is happening is just one little piece of the puzzle. 
and we look at what's happening with our genitals and a lot of us, like I certainly got raised to believe that your genital response says that you are ready for sex. You can tell your partner likes it because their genitals are responding. And it turns out that is just not true at all. And it leads to all kinds of misunderstandings and people not knowing how to trust their bodies because here their bodies responding to a thing and like emotionally they're like, hmm. Yeah. And that's why, and that's why I think the way that you break it down is so helpful when we think about consent because genital response versus emotional response, we need concordance or we need connection between those two. We it, don't. Oh, go for it. We don't need connection between those two. No, genital response is sort of it's a little bit beside the point. Okay. Sort of, you know, if you need more lubricant than your genitals are producing, use more lube. Yeah, well, uh, Beyond more blood flow to a penis, uh, cock rings are great. Yeah, sure. And let's learn to play with softer penises. Um, but also, uh, when it comes to understanding consent and what a, what a person wants or likes, how they feel is the only indicator that you need. Yeah. I, well, I, I say that when I say that the, from the vagina perspective in terms of the genital concordance, like if you are physically tense or you know if your vagina is oh yeah that that is the piece of genital genital concordance i was speaking to i agree with you lube all of that you can bring it on board you don't need that but if there's actual like visceral tension yeah make it hard you know vaginismus or otherwise to like enjoy any if penetrative sex or having something inside of your body, something you're even wanting. So that was my only piece. I was talking to a physical therapist just a couple of days ago, actually. Um, and we were talking about the phenomenon of when people get like pelvic floor physical therapy. She's this like really focused, empathetic, aware physical therapist. And just like the first touch to that muscle can activate really intense, profound emotions in people because they're experiencing this touch in a totally different context from how they're used to experiencing it. And their brain is giving them this like pure reaction, just reaction of what's going on in their body. Um, and this is something that's been documented in the research for 40 years now. We know it's, I, it sounds so like woo woo to say like, you hold your feelings, you hold your emotions in your body. You but like you hold your emotions in your body. Yeah, it's like it's all in here. Like it's all inside there. Seriously. And a lot of your emotions are in your pelvis. Yeah. It's this like spacious holding place built right into a body. Yeah. So your body is like, so I'm going to put the shame over here and the rage goes over here and the sadness I have to hide is just going to go right in the middle, right between the two of them. And I'm just going to hold on to all that until somebody like pushes in a way that's in like got loving kindness and permission behind it. And I'm going to like dissolve into tears. Yeah, That's the thing that happens. Yeah, I've had that experience myself. And I, I know of many clients of mine over the years who, when you get that type of pelvic work um, is it can feel really intense, especially Very when, intense. when I had my fibroids and I was navigating that and I was doing all of that kind of lower abdominal pelvic work. Um, we just do a lot of holding in that abdominal and, you know, pelvic area and I'm switching gears for just a moment. I want to just tap in a little bit thinking about emotions for people that are dating for the first time or dating someone new is probably a better way to put it. 
during this pandemic, you know, I've been working on a reframe similar to the detour piece, kind of seeing it as like forced Tantra essentially. And, but with a, I would say with a very different backdrop. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I'm so curious, like what your kind of tips or thoughts are around navigating dating when you don't have that person to do your 22nd deep, um, you know, parasympathetic nurturing hug with, and you're trying to do a lot of this virtual interactions. Like what are your thoughts around like cultivating intimacy right now? Yeah, it's, we know for sure that it's possible. There are strategies people can use to make online communication as replicable as possible of real interaction. Um, The more sensory modalities you use, the better. So, uh, Voice is better than just text. Video is better than just voice. And if literally, if you can be eating the same food separately, you're experiencing the same flavors and the same aromas at the same time. If you listen to the same music together, then your bodies will like entrain to this, a shared rhythm. And that can create like a real physiological shift. The more of your body you engage with your senses, then the more uh, it will replicate the physiological benefits of connection. And man, as a sex educator, like the thing I'm used to saying is like when you get to an appropriate level of intimacy, then uh, you get tested to find out what your statuses are. And we live in a world where you cannot get that test right now. And yeah. the, the fluids and skin contact that we're talking about as the appropriate level of intimacy is literally just breathing the same air. So this is, it's a brand new script. It is getting to know people. And when you dare to share physical space, you may be daring to like exchange this virus if you don't know what each person's status is. So there's a lot at stake. So you just go really slowly and let your body explore and respond. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all really good advice, especially the eating together at the same time, eating the same thing. Um, but I will say I'm, it'll be interesting to talk again in a couple of months once things have evolved and testing has become, you know, more of a part of our everyday life, because I'm really curious about how consent is going to evolve as a result of this. I think, you know, we were just kind of starting to press through making STIs less stigmatized and all of that. And now, I mean, test results will be a part of your very early part of your dating experience. Get to know you. Yeah. I'm just going to be like, Hey, how are you? Did you have a good day? Did you take COVID test? Do you have the antibodies? Yeah. (laughs) Something like that. It's going to show up in people's, uh, okay. Cupid profiles, people's like online profiles. (laughs) I've had COVID antibody positive. Yeah. Anybody positive. But like, I think that's a really, I think there's something again, it is too soon to really have any real celebration around any evolution, I think, in this time. Yeah. We are so, like, we just got pushed off the cliff and are starting yeah. to fall. But I think this development of a different kind of body literacy and vulnerability and transparency, I think, will eventually lead to better sex when we get to do it more frequently. Yeah. People we're already with or people that we will become with because we're having to communicate more. And so much of good sex is about negotiation and communication, which our society did not really 
surprise prior. Yeah. I, I share your optimism. I think it's a couple of years away. Yeah. But, but I see it coming. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I just love, I love talking to you. It's one of my favorite things to just like noodle out with you about where we're going and Me too. coming up so much. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time. And I, we actually answered the questions that came in through oh, this conversation. Um, so I, I think we can just say good evening or goodbye. And um, for folks that want to find you, where can they find you actually is probably one more thing to ask you. Uh, the main way to find me is actually the uh, Feminist Survival Project, which is a podcast I'm recording with my sister. I anticipated 2020 would be a shit show. I didn't know how right I would be. So last year I started a podcast with my sister about like survival tactics for getting through the shit show of 2020. So feministsurvivalproject.com. I'm excited about that. I haven't even listened yet. I got to get in there. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Definitely going to check out the podcast and stay safe and we will talk soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Emily. Bye. Thanks again for listening. If you have questions or feedback for us, head over to Instagram and leave us a DM. We're at Loom HQ. If you'd like to hear more from Emily, you can follow her at E Nagoski on Instagram and on Twitter. Or you could check out her amazing podcast that she hosts with her sister, Amelia, called Feminist Survival Project 2020. And you can find me on Instagram at Erica Chitty Cohen. Until next time, stay safe. Stay gentle and take care of yourself.